As promised at the top of the program, we are now joined by a San Francisco ophthalmologist and previous Radio Parallax uh, guest on many occasions, Dr. Gary Aguilar. Welcome back to Radio Parallax, Dr. Gary. Uh, thanks so much, Doug. I'm delighted to be back. I should clarify uh, our discussion today by noting that you and I crossed paths back in the early 90s in the wake of Oliver Stone's movie JFK, which reignited the controversy over uh, the death of our 35th president, John F. Kennedy. We're now facing the uh, the anniversary of that event. There's a lot of interest in it, and it's logical you and I now talk about it. Uh, yeah, it's a subject that has fascinated me for some time, even before the Oliver Stone film, although that did sort of reignite my interest in the case, too. Now, I want to start out by noting that um, you have spoken publicly on this issue on many occasions. I've spoken with you on a couple of them and, and been able to assist you on a couple of others. And uh, I, I would say that, um, well, let's just start out by clarifying a lot of people are going to hear in the 50th anniversary that the Warren Commission has been bruised and battered, but it basically is still standing up. And I would say that, uh, uh, let's clarify where you would stand on that, that position. Ever since I first heard debates back in the mid-late 60s uh, on the subject, I always thought the people who were skeptical of the Warren Commission were much more persuasive than those who argued in favor of the Warren Commission. And that's a position which all my research ever since has confirmed. Now, as a physician, you've concentrated primarily on the medical evidence in the case, and I thought we might do well to outline what those different areas of medical evidence are because the controversy is still raging and we need to know what the body of evidence is. So I guess well, starting, we should just make in passing mention uh, that of the Zapruder film, history's probably most notorious home movie. It uh, is quite, quite a sharp image of what takes place, but of course it has flaws. Absolutely. There were other still images taken there, and there were a couple of other filmed images, but far and away, the Zubruder film is the best image and uh, the best uh, capturing of that, uh, of that assassination. And whatever happened should, you know, some of it should be evidence on that film, but of course it, it was an 8mm film, it wasn't professional quality, and I guess we should just sort of mention that uh, there's much to be learned from it, but we should put that aside for the moment. With the exception of the one point I'd like to make about that film, and that is anyone watching that film immediately is struck by the fact that when Kennedy gets it in the head at the famous frame 313, he immediately rocks backward and to his left. Dan Rather saw the film the day or the day after the assassination and reported to the public that he fell forward. Uh, in the autopsy report, the autopsy doctors were advised what the event showed at the time of the assassination, and they said that with a fatal shot, Kennedy fell forward. The complexities of his rocketing backwards are perhaps beyond the discussion, but suffice it to say, the physicist who did studies proving the jet effect moved Kennedy back toward the rifle was untruthful in his findings. We can get into that at some time in the future, but it's a fascinating story, and it's a new story that, that I'm sure that any of your listeners uh, here will not have heard it before, although it will be coming out fairly shortly. Yes, that is indeed something we will need to talk about in future installments of this issue, and this, uh, this will be the first of many, I think, uh, Gary. But uh, let's move on to what happened. The president, he was basically struck, he was basically killed by the impact of the shot in Dealey Plaza, but, but the Secret Service rushed him to Parkland Hospital. Something like 16 doctors uh, piled into trauma room one to do what they could, and most of them duly uh, wrote up what had happened. Many of their reports appeared in the Warren Commission, and they testified before the Warren Commission. But uh, it seems clear, upon looking at what they had to say, that 
almost to a, a man or woman, uh, including the nurses that were there, they felt he'd been shot from the front. Yeah, and several of them, perhaps the most knowledgeable of them was the neurosurgeon, Kemp Clark was his name. He was a professor of neurosurgery, the head of the department, and he thought that he had had a tangential shot to the head, and he described what he called an occipital parietal defect. Now, the occiput is the very back of the head, and he said he saw brain tissue there called cerebellum, which only exists in the very far back of the head. He described this on the day of the assassination, as did many, as you mentioned, many, many other doctors and nurses. They all described a wound that appeared to involve mostly, almost virtually the entire right side of the head, but they all emphasized the fact that the posterior portion of the head was severely damaged as well, which made Dr. Clark suggest it might have been a tangential shot hitting on the side of the head, exiting toward the rear, or at least damaging the rear. Well, that, of course, is the crux of much of the controversy that has surrounded the medical evidence. How could that many um, trained observers, Parkland Hospital was a trauma center, these surgeons there saw a great deal of trauma, and uh, what they saw seems to be at odds with what uh, is the official version. Now, after he was declared dead, he was taken, his body was taken aboard Air Force One. Lyndon Johnson was sworn in as the next president, 36th president, and an official autopsy was conducted at Bethesda Naval Hospital. There's been a great deal said about how what they saw, or what their official report indicates, is at odds with what the doctors saw in Dallas. But uh, your, your investigation, I think it's fair to say, has convinced you that they are not perhaps that far apart. Well, early on there was a big controversy that was uh, started by <clears throat> someone on the basis of inadequate information. A fellow named David Lifton wrote a book called Best Evidence suggesting that the wounds that you can see in the autopsy photographs, and he showed them for the first time in his book in 1980, and the wounds described in Dallas were markedly different, and he explained that by suggesting the body had been in interrupted on the way to Bethesda Naval Hospital where the autopsy was done, and that the wounds were rearranged to make it look like he'd been shot only from behind, and to mask signs that he'd been shot and had a rearward defect. Now, part of the reason why that argument seemed to hold some uh, force was that the doctors from the autopsy were never interviewed. Um, and, uh, well, they wrote an autopsy report, but there are a number of other witnesses there. And finally, in the late 1970s, another investigation, the so-called House Select Committee, investigated, and they reported back that they'd interviewed 26 witnesses who were present at the autopsy, and all of them backed up the autopsy photographs that showed no rearward, rearward injury and therefore the Parkland doctors were wrong. They just made a mistake in the haste of uh, trying to resuscitate this, uh, the injured president. And all those interviews were suppressed. It's something that most people won't know, but it's been a great story. I can remember when the Assassination Records Review Board finally released all these documents, we went and looked at what those people from the autopsy had said. And even though the House Select Committee reported that they had endorsed the photographs and rejected the Parkland doctors' accounts, if you actually looked at the diagrams they prepared and at the descriptions they gave, they agreed with the Parkland doctors. There was a massive defect in the head, larger than was described at, at Parkland, which you would expect at an autopsy when you can peel wounds apart and see the full extent. <clears throat> You're not trying to do that during the resuscitation effort. So the wound was clearly larger at the autopsy, but it clearly involved the back of the head, and you had numerous witnesses including uh, other doctors in the room, uh, the mortician who prepared the head for burial, a number of other technicians who were there, uh, all of whom described very much the same thing, a defect that went from the very back of the head forward, toward the right. 
Well, this is where things, I think, get positively interesting. Uh, I should note, too, that you do not accept David Lipton's premise, as, as, as I do not either, that there was body alteration. Well, I, I think that, you know, using Occam's razor, I don't think you needed to explain the findings. All right. And since you don't need to invoke some fanciful notion that somehow they were able to you know, spirit the body away and rearrange the wounds, which I don't think you could have done anyhow. Yes. And, and by the way, I do have some experience in these sorts of matters myself. Uh, in my early years um, at, uh, at Harvard General Hospital, I was a, a general surgery resident and was the admitting trauma surgeon uh, for a period of two months during my, that residency. So I saw a fair amount of trauma myself. And you, you get so that you're quite accustomed to this. Uh, Parkland Hospital has, has a great trauma center, uh, much like UCLA's Harvard General Hospital. And uh, the sorts of descriptions these guys gave were on the basis of lots of experience. And I don't think that you can just dismiss them as has been done by so many people as having been simply erroneous, particularly a treating and an examining neurosurgeon. I mean, that's, that's his line of work. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's, let's, let's summarize then. We have a film, which we can talk about at greater length in the future, that, that's, a, that's quite an accurate representation of what happened. We have a couple dozen witnesses who tried to resuscitate the president in Parkland. Then we have three autopsy pathologists and another, when it's all said and done, close to another couple dozen witnesses from Bethesda. And um, we have all of their reports. But, but Something you have seen, and a select number of doctors have taken the time to see, is the record that remains from the photographs, the x-rays, a supplemental brain examination that was done in Bethesda. Those have been in the hands of the Kennedy family lawyers and in the National Archives and back and forth. They, have, they were not published until a bootleg copy of the films were released, and the x-rays uh, were later released by subsequent investigation. You've actually looked at these materials. You've been there in the room looking at them, and... Um, it's fair to say there appear to be some problems. The subject is enormously complicated, and just by summarizing, you have all these witnesses in two facilities that have great credentials to describe wounds, and then you look at the photographs and the x-rays, and they're in stark conflict with what so many credible witnesses said. So then you begin wondering, and you begin scratching your head, could everyone have been wrong? All the doctors in Parkland, all the witnesses at Bethesda, everybody made a mistake and exactly the same mistake. Let me put it in a slightly different way. Uh, witness error is pretty common, but there are things that generally can explain witness error. And one of them is tremendous pressure at the time of the uh, witnessed event, inexperience, uh, long duration from the time of the witnessed event, drug effects, alcohol effects, so on and so forth. None of these really explain doctors at Parkland Hospital making the errors like they did because they see trauma every day. This is their bread and butter. So th that sort of thing doesn't explain it. But there's even a more compelling thing, and that is that if you look at the wounds that you see in Jack Kennedy's head, there is not a single witness, uh, that is, the, the wounds that you see in the photographs, there isn't a single witness who described them looking that way. <laughs> Out of all the witnesses, well, no one. That does seem like a bit of a problem. And then there's the added thing that, you know, we, we it's very difficult to invoke the idea that they actually falsified the photographs, although, you know, certainly uh, no government is above lying to the public. Uh, they all seem to lie to the public about one thing or another. But it's very clear that there appear to be autopsy images missing. And the reason I say that is because all three doctors who were at the autopsy, both the autopsy technicians who took the photographs there, the ophthalmic photographers, as well as the technicians who developed them, 
all of them said that images that they either saw or took themselves are not in the official record now. So one has to ask oneself, okay, if all of the people who are percipient witnesses, that is, people who actually saw the events, are impugning the so-called best evidence, hard evidence of, auto, of the photography, how much confidence can you have in them? I think Dr. Agalab will need to spend a little bit of time detailing some of what you're describing here. But before we, before we get into some of these details, a lot of the people that, we're, that are listening to us right now are quite unfamiliar with um, uh, the details of, of this matter. It is very complex. And one of the complexities here is the fact that this has been investigated several times. In your chapter, which is a very good chapter, we can, uh, we can advise people to uh, go on the web and see what they can uh, uh, find of what you've written. You wrote a chapter for the book Trauma Room 1. Uh, subtitled The JFK Medical Cover-Up Exposed. It was written by Charles Crenshaw with some, with some help from other people. Um, you had a special chapter in there dealing with this medical evidence and its problems. But what struck me when I, when I reread this recently was that uh, you outlined how you, you gave a talk to The Nation magazine, which you'd expect to be somewhat receptive to the point you were making about uh, problems with the official view. And uh, I believe one of the editors listened to you, but at the end just said, how can you, a San Francisco ophthalmologist, be right when all of these investigations and all of these qualified pathologists have taken a look at this and concluded differently? So let's enumerate, if, if, we, if we will, what these different investigations were. This inspired you with assistance from a woman called Kathy Cunningham, a very uh, capable um, researcher, to write a paper, which people can read on the internet, titled How Five Investigations Got It Wrong. Let's talk about which those investigations were. We've already mentioned the Warren Commission report. Everybody knows about that one. But uh, three years later, there was some renewed interest in this. Uh, let's pick up the trail there. Right. But, but by setting the, uh, the path that we're going to be on, let's understand that there was an investigation early in the 1960s or a couple of years after the assassination, one a little bit later in the late 1960s, um, uh, and then a couple of others after that. And all of them, and ultimately through the House Select Committee's reinvestigation in 1978. Well, the House Select Committee was, I, I guess you'd say, the, the fifth and or, final investigation. Fifth and final investigation. What, and, came, what came between the Warren Commission and the House Select Committee? We're not talking about, you know, ophthalmologists who may have spent a little time as general surgeons. We're talking about some of the leading lights in pathology in the world, leading lights in radiology. These are internationally renowned experts that looked at this evidence and concluded, yep, looks to us like two shots from the rear. So how is it that, you know, this, this, this you know, rather uh, obnoxious ophthalmologist from San Francisco <laughs> would dare to challenge them? But it, it, what one finds if one takes the trouble is that you don't have to have an advanced degree. You don't even have to have been a trauma surgeon as I once was to begin realizing how this game is played and how the evidence is stacked up to, con to confirm the official version right from the get-go, right from even before the assassination, from the, day of the, from the day the autopsy was done, through all the subsequent investigations, what you begin seeing is a clear pattern of evidence being slanted in one direction. And you find errors that are whopping errors that, you know, any, any interested party with uh, perhaps a high school education could see for themselves that here is a nationally renowned pathologist making absurd statements that no one would defend, and nor do I think he would defend if, if he was in a debate with me publicly. And I debated the chairman of the, of the House Select Committee on Assassinations, of New York coroner Michael Bodden. Suffice it to say, I think that even people who were sympathetic to him thought that he'd really gotten trounced quite badly. <laughs> 
because first of all, they don't know the case. They have they have a patriotic solution to the crime, but the the evidence is quite clear. So let's go through that a little bit. We're speaking with San Francisco eye surgeon Gary Aguilar about the medical evidence surrounding the death of our 35th president, John F. Kennedy. I'd like you to go back to 1966, if you would. The, the original autopsy materials disappeared. We were taking the word of the autopsy pathologist and the report in the Warren Commission. But as you say, when the Department of Justice um, under Ramsey Clark got a renewed interest all of a sudden in 1966, I think perhaps we would uh, might conjecture that the, the fact there were some bestsellers critical of the Warren Commission at that time. Yes, there were. And at, there was also a case that was ramping up in New Orleans where Jim Garrison was taking a look at all this again. Right. And uh, your colleague, Tink Thompson, was in the process of putting together a book. He was then working for Life magazine investigating this. Life did a uh, uh, an article three years after the assassination said this was a matter of reasonable doubt, the question of whether Oswald had acted alone. There may be, the, the evidence appeared to be that of, uh, of two different gunmen. Um, all that said, uh, what we have today, what you looked at and your colleagues have looked at, the autopsy materials, as far as we can tell, as far as I can reconstruct from, from your record, is that um, that is what surfaces in 1966. What we have today, we can only go back to 66 on. That's right. And I, but I think that the, the way to set this is set, you set it up beautifully, and that is that all of a sudden the Justice Department under whose auspices the investigation was done for the Warren Commission. The Warren Commission didn't investigate this. They asked J. Edgar Hoover, who hated the Kennedys, <laughs> to investigate. And J. Edgar Hoover, um, basically to make certain there would be loyalty to his uh, conclusions, had all the Warren Commissioners file checked for derogatory information. That isn't my saying, so that's an official finding of uh, one of the subsequent commissions. He basically was going to take no argument about Oswald having acted alone, and for reasons that are beyond this discussion. But you had the Justice Department all of a sudden deciding, boy, there's a lots of questions being raised. So they called back the original autopsy pathologist and said, okay, um, uh, here are the autopsy materials. Did you guys get it right the first time? And they said, yes, we sure did get it right the first time. And so um, uh, that apparently wasn't sufficient. So then Ramsey Clark uh, presumably through a, a guy named Carl Erdley for the Justice Department, a Justice Department official, specifically asked one of the autopsy pathologists to write a letter requesting an independent review, uh, which that autopsy pathologist then did. Now, we, this is all up in the essay, how five investigations got it wrong, and you can read the original documents. Um, but on they went, and then, of course, they got a panel of people, and one of the doctors who was asked to do that was a very credible uh, expert himself, Russell Fisher, a Baltimore medical examiner. And um, in a paper, foolishly, many years later, um, Russell Fisher admitted uh, what his charge had been. He admitted that Ramsey Clark had contacted him. And you can imagine, I mean, even though you're a successful coroner in a, in a, in a major city, all of a sudden the, the Attorney General of the United States contacts you, and, and he says that Ramsey Clark asked him would he take a look at this autopsy material because they needed help uh, dispelling some of this nonsense that was coming out in a book being written by a guy named Josiah Thompson, Six Seconds in Dallas, one of his classic uh, uh, books on the subject of the assassination, published in 1967. So here the guy that's going to go investigate, do a medical investigation, has already been told by the Attorney General that we need to we need to essentially put a kibosh on doubts being raised about this assassination. And so I'm not going to go through the myriad errors that the Clark panel made, but they're whopping errors, well, very simple let, ones anyone can, can, can understand once they, once they read the, the original document or the documents that are available and that are available online. 
Let, let me jump in here and put you on the spot. And you, I don't know how you're going to answer this, and you, you can certainly be diplomatic. It would probably be wise of you to do so. But let me, let me just put you on the spot. The Department of Justice is asked to review the autopsy materials, and all of a sudden, materials appear. X-rays appear, photographs appear, supplemental brain examinations appear for an independent panel, the Clark panel, to examine. The uh, Rockefeller Commission took a look at the same material somewhat later. They, they impaneled a group of pathologists to say, does this look good to you? And with the, with the dissenting voice from Cyril Wecht uh, notwithstanding, they said yes. The House Select Committee came about in the 1970s when Robert Groden, a man who obtained a, um, a copy of the Zapruder film, convinced Geraldo Rivera that the nation may want to see this as a movie. And there was a huge, as I'm sure you remember, national outcry that, oh my God, it appears the president is knocked backward. Maybe he was shot from the front after all. The House Select Committee got together to take a look at all of this data, and they concluded, as did the Department of Justice, the Clark Panel, the Rockefeller, uh, before them, and of course the Warren Commission, five now uh, examinations all saying, yeah, it's, it's, he was shot from the rear. There's two shots from the rear. The question I would have for you is, if you've documented in exquisite detail in your book how all these people describe a wound in the back of the head, and I would ask our listeners at this point to reach behind their head right now and feel the lump. There's a lump um, at, at the base of your skull. It's called the external occipital protuberance. The original autopsy report noted that the wound began a little above it and a little to the right of it, and that the bone that's back there is called the occipital bone. All the doctors observed that there was a hole in that bone. Now, you've been there looking at the x-rays. In the, the, You've held them in your hand, you've held them up to a light box, you've taken a look at them, and from what I can see, from what's in the public domain, obviously not as good a copy as the originals, there's no hole there. Uh, is, can you come up with an innocent explanation for this? Uh, I've racked my brains for <laughs> 20 years, literally, trying to come up with an innocent explanation for it. And, you know, there's something definitely wrong with the autopsy photographs, as all the people uh, say. And the x-rays are also extremely confusing. They make no sense. Well, then, I, then I put it to you, doctor. Isn't it not possible that everyone who's come to these same conclusions is looking at tainted data, garbage in, garbage out? I, I think that that's part of it. And certainly... Um, when, you, when you read, the, the, one of the interesting things about all these different panels that look into this is that you'll find one of the early in, investigators or examiners or, quote, experts makes a mistake, and that mistake is carried through all the subsequent uh, in, in, in investigations. For example, uh, the original autopsy report said that there was a trail of bullet uh, fragments going from that little knob in the low back part of your head, the external occipital protuberance, forward uh, toward the front of the skull. Uh, at the, uh, to the exit. Uh, well, that's not where that trail of fragment is at all. So that the Clark panel comes in, and now they have a nationally renowned x-ray expert, um, and he goes in there and he looks at it, he says, no, 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 uh, we decided that you guys missed the original shot. It, it, the bullet didn't go in low like that. It went in a lot higher, mm -hmm. and we can prove that because the trail of fragments goes right to the place where we said it went higher. Well, you know, you look at the original autopsy photographs, and they're available, or autopsy x-rays, and they're available on the web, and you can see that that trail doesn't go to where the second group of experts said it went either. But these kinds of mistakes be, keep being picked up because somebody well, wants to try to explain it in a way that's favorable to the government's original conclusion that he was shot from behind. And, and so they fall over themselves making all sorts of silly, silly errors just to reconfirm the original government's version of two shots from behind. 
By the way, I do hope that people listening to this will go to the web and look at the images. We, of course, are deeply curtailed by the fact that this is radio. We have no pictures, no diagrams. They will be immensely helpful to someone's understanding if they'll take the time to look them up. But the diagram I would direct people's attention to, first and foremost, is what's called the Rydberg diagram. Uh, this was, this was uh, put together based on the descriptions of the autopsy pathologists of the wound. It's a very peculiar drawing in that it appears to show the bullet entering as everyone not just the autopsy doctors, but the doctors in Parkland, uh, describe a wound that's very low in the back of the head. The, the purported um, path of the fatal missile for the Rydberg diagram comes in very low and exits the top. And to make this work from someone shooting from above and behind, the diagram has Kennedy basically you know, face down. He's basically looking at the ground. And as Tink Thompson pointed out in his, uh, his, his well-respected book in 1967, well, let's just take a look at his actual position when the missile struck. And of course, it's completely at odds with this. But I would ask you then, is it not possible that someone took a look at that and said, oh my God, we've got a problem here. And uh, the wound suddenly moves 10 centimeters up in the skull. That, that's one of the great ironies here. We, we are getting into the weeds in terms of medical detail. But imagine that the original autopsy pathologists, all three of them said that the bullet entered low in the back of the head. And they actually said there was a gaping hole from the entrance point and the original autopsy um, uh, face sheet, they call it, where they write their notes down contemporaneously examining the body. And we know it's an original because it's got Kennedy's blood stains on it. You can see them on the web. It says 17 missing. And the doctors were asked, what's that mean? They said, well, there was a hole 17 centimeters long fore to aft of, of missing bone. And that went way back down to the lower back of the head, but that didn't fit with a shot from above behind. So now all of a sudden, the x-rays show up in 1966, and, and, and lo and behold, even though the original autopsy doctors were told to go get bullet evidence for the then still living assumed assassin, Lee Harvey Oswald, uh, the largest bullet fragment on the skull uh, is, is there, they don't mention it in the autopsy report, they didn't pick it up and bring it in for evidence, and what does it happen to be? It happens to be a perfectly round 6.5 millimeter round fragment. Which, which fits the reported murder weapons bullet perfectly. Perfectly, 6.5 uh, uh, millimeters. Um, and so you imagine that all of a sudden, and now imagine the further complexity here. That little fragment of bullet is on the outside of Kennedy's skull in the back, okay? so. You've got a cross-section of the bullet. The nose of the bullet is forward of Kennedy in the front seat. The tail of the bullet is forward from Kennedy someplace in front of him in the car. And you have a cross-section from the middle of the bullet splattered across the back of his skull. How did that happen? I, I've been in, 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 in lecture rooms when, when I've seen you show a slide of this particular x-ray, the, the front-to-back x-ray, and you ask, is there anyone in the room that doesn't see this particular fragment here? <laughs> of course, everyone present can plainly see this large bullet that's, that's there on the x-ray. And yet, the official story is, even though all they do is peel the scalp up and take it off, they somehow missed it? That's apparently what the, the argument is made. Now, some people, uh, David Merritt specifically, thinks that, that he has some evidence that, that they could have duplicated that slide in a way and falsified by adding that fragment to it. And he may well be right, because I see, I, if you're the doctors who were charged with doing this, you're told to get bullet evidence, and you ignore it, don't mention it in your autopsy report, and it's not even mentioned anywhere in it, and, and you leave it in the body, um, 
something makes me think that it wasn't there perhaps to begin with. Uh, that's just one of the problems. Again, there, there are myriad other ones, but, but, uh, but this is the sort of thing that, you know, anyone who has a, a sincere interest in this sort of thing, it just drives you crazy after a while. Uh, because we've caught the government, particularly in this case, hiding evidence, falsifying evidence, misreporting things. These grand poobah experts making the sorts of mistakes that you know even a high school graduate could figure out were wrong. Um, it, it ends up you, you begin understanding that when the government wants a certain solution to things, uh, it's going to get it. And um, and I think that in the autopsy, uh, uh, that's one. Now, ju just to give you an example of how this how this goes and how people are. The chairman of the House Select Committee on Assassinations, Michael Bodden, wrote a book um, uh, in 1989 uh, about you know, a number of things and, and discussed. In this book, and on numerous occasions afterward, he said that the autopsy pathologists uh, took lousy, or the photographs of the autopsy, Jack Kennedy's autopsy, were lousy, because as he said in the book, that um, uh, there were, you know, there were, the FBI agents came in and saw these guys with cameras and said, do you guys have clearance? I said, well, you know, what do you mean clearance? I'm an autopsy photographer. He says, well, you don't have clearance. And so they took the film out of their camera, you know, and exposed it, and that the FBI agents took the autopsy photographs, and that's why they're so lousy. Now, this is Which Michael is, Bodden. Yeah. Okay, mm -hmm. now, here, here's, here's the, the, the story about this. I mean, um, Michael Bodden was the chairman of the House Select Committee on Assassinations. In addition to evidence that the original autopsy photographers who were normally there took the autopsy photographs, and that is documented in, in Warren Commission documents, it is also documented in the report that Dr. Michael Bodden supervised. The original autopsy photographers took the autopsy photographs, and Michael Bodden just invented this, this fairy tale. So I had to debate him once. Uh, I, I showed him the original uh, documents. He went, oh, 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 and, and, and thereafter, you know, sort of stumbled and spluttered and that sort of thing. And yet, three or four years later, there he was on television again telling the same story. That seems to happen a lot. That seems to happen a lot. That's what you get from, from you know, and he's the former coroner of New York City, uh, a man with incredible credentials. But these fairy tales get into their mind, and they just never, never get out, and you, you won't learn what happened by listening to them. Well, Dr. Aguilar, I think this, this will serve as a very good introduction to this case. You, I know, are going to travel to Pittsburgh for a, 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 a symposium being held by Dr. Cyril Wecht, and you'll be giving a talk there. I expect that we may learn some interesting new things at that conference. You're also going to go to Dallas in November. Uh, so I would like you to come back in the next month or two, and let's do some updates about where this all seems to be heading. I would like I would note in closing that uh, uh, looking at your material and the case you've made for the fact that the, the medical observers, let's just say the, the techs, the doctors, the autopsy pathologists, the photographers, uh, the people who process the, the, the films, the morticians, the, the ambulance driver, the Secret Service agents, the FBI agents that were in the autopsy room who, to make a report on this, there's universal agreement there was injury to the back of the head. Since these do not appear in the photographs and they do not appear in the x-rays, I've had to conclude that these materials have misled everybody because they simply must be altered. I know you may not be willing to go there yet, but that's something that I think we need to, to look at. 
again, I would not be surprised if that were the case. I really would not be surprised because I don't know how else you can explain such incredible discrepancies from such credible witnesses. But I would note in closing that uh, you're not a radiologist, I'm not a radiologist. Reading x-rays isn't always that, uh, that straightforward. So between now and the time we will speak next, uh, you and I are going to go travel and get a bunch of <laughs> objective radiologists, uh, give them a description of the wound, show the x-rays and say, is this possible and see what happens. It'll be worth doing. We might not want to even bring along the autopsy photographs and show them those as well because good bootleg copies are available. Yes. Dr. Gary Aguilar, thank you very much for speaking with us. I anticipate uh, more interesting talks on this very topic uh, in the not too distant future. Thank you so much for having me as a guest and I'll look forward to it. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. Take a short break.